Like, I'm one of those lucky bitches that, like, bleeds three days, maybe four, and then I'm good. And that's... Or just get an IUD and be like, bye, bitch. Um, no, when I got my IUD, I bled like... I know. Somebody was stabbing me. Blood everywhere. No, mine's been great. I love oh, it. Oh, God. Yeah, no, and everyone's different. Oh, uh, I was so close to just clawing it out myself because nobody would take it out. (laughs) Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan and I'm here with my co-host Milana. Hey guys, you're listening to the bi-weekly podcast that explores feminist figures in the arts and sciences. Today we're going to learn about the first Chinese Western female artist and the woman who's known as the mother of Hubble. Yeah, I'm trying to think how much I do or do not know about the Hubble telescope and it is next to nothing. Good, 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 good. This is perfect. This is what I want to hear. This is not facetious. I I love giving you knowledge. I'm so excited. You're going to be like, what? We're going to end on a good note. All right. That's cool. Today's a interesting story. Oh, my God. You still can't bring me a happy story? I mean, it's happy in that she gets international acclaim during her lifetime on my end. I, okay. All right. That's fair. You know what? Life isn't always perfect and things go to hell as we are all learning right now. And you just got to roll with it and then make the best of it. Mm. Wait. Yeah. Oh. So I'm thinking Chinese woman in the 20th century. So she's probably affected by some stuff. Yep. There, there's some key political revolutions going on and, you know, just general global disruptions with two world wars. But yeah, you know. You know. I can kind of dampen things. But I think you'll like the work that she does. More dicks? No, not this time. More of the female body. But yeah. Okay. All right, that's fair. I am. Um, I'm kind of being a copycat because last episode you did a first Chinese scientist, Nobel Prize winner, Doctor Tu Yuyu, and today I'm covering our first Chinese artist, painter and sculptor. Well, sometimes sculptor, Pan Yuleng. Like you said, she's considered China's first woman artist to bridge Eastern and Western art practices within her work. Unless she came up for the treatment of like parasite eggs in your spine i wouldn't call her a copycat (laughs) yeah so today we've got kind of the first modern artist in china to fuse western and eastern techniques and we're kind of continuing on last episode's theme of like female agency within the artwork fuck yeah and there's not as many okay there's not any dicks like there were last episode there were a lot of them so many and things were kind of weird last episode (laughs) All right, so with Chinese naming conventions, the family names comes comes first. So that's why today I'm going with Yulang and not her surname Pan. Mm. Her full name is, is Pan Yulang. Oh, okay. So I heard Penny Lang. Okay, so it's Pan Yulang. Yeah, and in some okay. circles, her last name is Pan Yulin, but majority and by the majority I mean like pretty much everything I came across was Yulang so that's why I'm going with Yulang today kind of like last episode just in general Yulang's start in life wasn't the easiest so she was born in 1895 in a region about three hours north of Shanghai which is a port city on the eastern China Sea and if you think about like the southernmost island of Japan and draw a line over to China like that's that's like the region we're at so, southernmost island of Japan, and then draw a line to China. Got it. Yeah. So, kind of like dead center of the coast of Japan. So, like halfway between yeah. Beijing and Hong Kong, and those are only like yeah. hundreds of hundreds of miles far, like huh. between one another. Yeah. It's crazy to think how big China is. It's it's ridiculous. I was um I was checking distance between some of these cities. And, like, on a map, you're like, okay, that doesn't look that far apart. And then you enter it in and you're like, oh, it's only, like, 300 miles. 
And then to keep scrolling out and out and out and out and to just see how vast it is. I was like, I just am completely incapable of fully comprehending how large this country is. And, like, it's crazy because, like, when we lived in Japan, like, we would sometimes do day trips to uh, one of the naval posts, like, bases. And, like, that's not Mm -hmm. anywhere near where we were. Like, technically, we were closer to central Japan. Like, we were, like, an hour south of Tokyo. But, like, we did that in a day and we enjoyed the day and then we went home. And, like, just the contrast of, like, just, like doing that and then realizing that like the country to their left is like just this expanse it's so huge it's so crazy <laughs> yeah and for the most part we're just kind of staying in that little bubble in shanghai so i was like okay this for me to be able to understand a basic amount about the region i'm like this makes it a little easier yeah. for me oh oh or like when i had somebody yesterday go hey i'm in colorado but i don't live next to any of the the company that you work for how can I go into the store or take care of my glasses? And then I looked and I was like, oh, we have some stores in Colorado. And then I like went to Google Maps with her address and with our address of our stores. And I was like, holy shit, you're six hours away. And like, I'm so used to being on the East Coast where if I want to go two states south, it's only like an hour and a half. I was like, oh, this is not a day trip. Okay. (laughs) I mean, like, let's get some mail-in options. <laughs> yeah, no, straight up. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so China is, it's huge. But we're kind of just staying in a little Shanghai bubble. And Shanghai, during the time that, you know, she was kind of coming of age, it was a cool place to be. It was like the New York City of China. Fancy. Yeah, but we're not quite there yet. I don't have exact dates, but when Yulang was young, her parents died leaving her an orphan. Oh, my God, Megan. I know. <laughs> I know I'm not on the warm and fuzzy <laughs> just, roll. Just wait a fact one. She was an orphan. <laughs> Step two, her uncle sold her to a brothel. Stop, Megan. You know what shit happens in life and we're going to move past it. But you promised me warm and fuzzy. That was the last episode, and I only 85% delivered. There was no pinky promises about this episode. Uh, I know. I know. Uh, She was about 10. A few sources said that she was initially sold as a servant, but either way, it was not great. No, because when you're 10 years old, you're a servant, but when you hit puberty, suddenly you're a little bit. Yeah. I found a contract a contract for a worker from 1886 and it had like a few different stipulations for the workers and one of them was that you got one day off a month because of your period ew yeah one day to be like no i'm super crampy i can't work because like most women's periods last more than a day like you bleed more than a day so i was thinking maybe i know (laughs) for workers at the time if they became pregnant that was another year added to their contract. Oh, no. She didn't become pregnant, did she? Well, she did. She didn't stay that way, okay. as far as I'm aware. All right. But Yuling's knight in shining armor came in the form of a underground resistance member, 10 years her senior, and also a governmental cus- custom supervisor. I... <laughs> <laughs> I know. Like, I have questions. Uh, his name is Pan Zanhua. I guess he came in one day and then really liked her. It, it's actually really sweet. So Yulang and Zuha, they met about 1912. And a year later, he, he bought out Yulang's contract from the brothel, declared his love for her, and then they were married in 1913. Aww. Yeah, she's, she's 18 years old. Here's the kicker. She was the second wife. I'm, uh, was she okay with that? Yes. Like the second wife, like he divorced her second second wife, like they were they were just a family of three. No, like that was a family of three. Oh, okay. I mean, if she's cool with it, then yeah, whatever. I mean, <laughs> they made it work. <laughs> Up to that point in China, early 1900s, it was totally chill for a man to take on a second wife or have like multiple mistresses. Right. Now, was her purpose as the second wife, like, the first one wouldn't give birth? and Or is it just, yeah? No, I think he just, he he fell in love with her and was like, 
like I love you and I have the means to get you out of this situation and uh, you know I'll marry you and support you Aww. and it, it really is he was really supportive of her entire life. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. That's fine. So a, a little a little bit of a rocky start, but things start to pick up from here. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm not quite sure the dynamic between Yulang and San Hua's other wife. Right. And I, I didn't even come across her name well. in all the research, which was kind of shitty, but they made it work. At, at one point, um, the first wife and him, they have a son together. And uh, Yulang does a painting of her, her husband, and the son, and it's titled My Family. Aww. Yeah. So... They made it work. Okay. Zanawa was super supportive of Yulang. He was super well-educated. He's a supporter of a republic, China. And when they moved to Shanghai in the late 1910s, Yulang expressed an interest in learning painting. And he was like, all right, cool. Let's get you enrolled in college. Sure. And like, like up to that point of them marrying, like Yulang was, she was illiterate. She couldn't even, oh no. She could read now. She could write now. Yeah, see, I know. Rocky start. We're going to end well. So, yeah, considering her circumstances in her early years, you know, being illiterate, that's not necessarily uncommon. But something that was unique about the period Yulang was living through was the complete overhaul of the Chinese government. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that, Megan. So, the same year that Yulang and Zuha met, 1912, the last dynasty of China fell. Like, 2,000 years of imperial rule gone, replaced with the start of a republic. Yeah. And her husband, he was he was a supporter of that. That was him being kind of an underground revolutionary worker because mm. he supported a republic. So, he okay. So, she's kind of living through this really unique time that there's this complete political overhaul of China. It's opening up to the world, and Yulin got to ride that wave of modernization, and that's super evident in her education. Mm-hmm. So, when Yulong and her family moved to Shanghai, uh, which I, I said it was considered like the New York City of China, like a really big cultural hub. There, Yulong, she gets to know, gets to know a neighbor who introduces her to Western-style painting. Mm. His name's Hong Yi. He's an art professor, and with the support of him and her husband, in 1920 at 25, Yulang is enrolled at the Shanghai Arts Academy. Ooh, suddenly she's in a fancy space. Yeah, and, and her husband has the means to be able to facilitate this for her. Cause, That's so cool. I mean, being orphaned, she has no family support, like, at all. And it's pretty cool because she was the first co-ed class of any college or university in China as a whole. Wait, what year was this? This is in 1920, and it was the first co-ed college class huh. ever. The first time women were allowed to work alongside men. That's crazy. For a higher degree. That's yeah. And Yulang, she really makes the most of it. This academy, it was unique in offering Western-style art lessons, and that included nude models. And there was a huge deal. So the head honcho of the school, he received a lot of public shit because the nude was so counter to traditional Chinese art practices. Right. And Yulang, she really enjoyed working with the figure. It's a constant throughout her art practice. And her hard work at school did pay off, which is pretty awesome. So she was the first Chinese woman to be awarded a scholarship to further her studies in France. What? Yeah. Starts as an orphan and is now international. Like, what? Oh, just wait. There is more. Oh, my God. So after the fall of the last dynasty, the, the Qin dynasty, the Republic of China is strengthening its international ties, you know, and they do so with, with programs like the scholarship that Yulang was awarded. And her time at college wasn't all rosy. She she did face harassment because of her work in a brothel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also being a second wife, that was kind of another knock to her perceived social standing. Did she have to tell people that she came from a brothel? She could just lie to people. And she did. Like, that was something that, I mean, on her end, she was probably like, that's none of your fucking business. Yeah. But people still gossiped and were really shitty about it. And that classism, like, was super hard working against her. And then, too, like... Being the second wife, that was another yeah. perceived social slight of like, oh, well, you're not his first wife. Mm. I mean, I, again, you're just like, fuck off. I'm very happy with my family. So she did kind of keep that stuff mom as, as much as she could. Little Junior has two moms and a dad. Yeah. Fuck off. Like, <laughs> none of your business. 
go away. (laughs) Oh, God. So when she traveled to France and then later Italy, she was escaping that classism. But, I mean, undeniably, she was marginalized because of her gender and her race. Right. And that sounds depressing, I know. But, like, she still makes it work and that's what matters. That's important. And, I mean, it's just important to acknowledge these things. Yeah. So while she's living in France, she's absorbing as much as she can about modern painting. And there's one movement in particular that she really enjoys. And that's... Don't tell me the pastel colors. No, no. She is interested in the works of the post-impressionism. I... The post-impressionistics? Post-impressionistic artists? I apparently can't say that well. (laughs) It's a long word. (laughs) Sonism. That's what she likes. And it's it's brightly colored. And Matisse was the biggest artist within that art movement. Yeah. Oh, Matisse. Yeah. Not so much pastels. Things are brightly colored. Mm-hmm. Things are a little loosey-goosey yeah. in how they're depicted. Yeah. I mean, it's realism, but it's like, it's stylized. Yeah. You're like, ah, that's definitely a lady. That's definitely a naked lady. <laughs> or, you know, like a, a boat scene or a landscape yeah. or, or whatever it might yeah. be. And Yulang incorporated aspects of that art movement, of those colors and that use of line, into her own work. Oh, yeah. And it's pretty cool because while studying in France, Yulang was awarded another scholarship, and this time to go study sculpture in Rome. So off she goes there. Oh, very cool. She's like, all right, I'm, yeah. I'm done painting. I'm going to go to Rome now. I know. I know. And it's pretty cool because... I mean, we've covered numerous times, like, to learn sculpting, Rome is the place to be. So six years after Yuling initially left China, she returns home in 1928. She's 33 and, like, instantly has solo shows. What? Because that's, like, it, I part of it is because it's new and different, right? Yeah, and two, because it's, you know, there's a break with imperial rule. Um, she's going back to Shanghai, which is, like a fairly liberal cultural hub where there's lots of new ideas and, you know, kind of Western ideas are being introduced because it's a port city. So there's people from all over the world coming. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, if she was initially from Beijing, I don't know if it would have been the same type of reception just because of the period of time she happened to like intersect with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. so that makes sense. And it's pretty cool she's having these solar shows because on one account, she was shipping artwork from France back to China, and it, like, all burned up in a cargo fire. <gasps> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I would have thrown a class A fit or just cried, cried in a tub of ice cream. I mean, I'm sure she did. Ben and Jerry's. Like, I would have. But Yuling was also, like, a very prolific artist. So while I'm sure that was a significant chunk of her work that was just lost, it was in mm-hmm. everything. So when she did come back to China, she still had a significant amount of work that she was able to just be like, yeah, we can do a solo show. I'm good. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah, which is <sighs> super impressive. Nothing gets me down. I mean, I'm sure it did. I just did not happen to find any firsthand accounts of how she felt. Yeah, but like also she'd be like, look, I was an orphan and I was like forced to have sex. Like, this is nothing. We've got this. I've handled worse. You know what? That is an excellent point. Yeah. I'm sure I should be like, you know what? Give me a week. I'll make just as much work. <laughs> no, and, and her whole life, like she's very resilient and she just keeps moving forward. The artwork Yuling's making is mostly paintings, sometimes sculpture, but that's like a little later. And like what Yuling has done to earn the title China's first female Western artist, which is that's the title of her first solo show is fuse traditional Chinese art techniques with modern Western content. Okay. All right. So I'm thinking like calligraphic lines and strokes with Western, I guess, nudity? Uh, yeah. No, that's actually pretty solid. Okay. Huh. Yeah. That's kind of the most of what she's known for. So she's pulling from traditional ink paintings with that delicate line work and like washes of color and very fluid movement that you just kind of touched on. Right. But then she applies the color sensibilities of modern Western painters like Matisse. Oh. And then she's also incorporating in content um, like everyday like observations. So like still lives and the nude figure. Okay. You know, scenes from like a a park or boats or landscapes. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. Can't believe I got that right. Yeah, no, I mean, you, that's that's exactly it. <laughs> so in 
And there's some variation in her work with leaning more towards traditional Western modern art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but she's kind of got this kind of unique way of handling the sensibilities of both Chinese tradition, but then also, you know, kind of opening up a little bit more to a different Western perspective. And that combination made Yuling's work really popular once she's back in Shanghai. So over 10 years, she has five solo shows. Holy shit. She's teaching at the Shanghai Art Academy, and then she's appointed the director of the Western Painting Department. I, This woman. Yeah, that's a big deal. And things are going good. You know, she's heading the, the Western Art Department. She's involved in the art community. She's establishing her name, like, regionally, nationally, and internationally. And, you know, she's just one of the many leading artists, like, in China, bringing it into a new modern creative period. And, and that kind of only lasts for so long. What? We've got a few road bumps in this story. So, like I mentioned, people gave you a long shit for her, her background as a sex worker. And that really came into focus with her work as a professor. So those that were from very well-to-do families, like, snubbed her and gave her shit. Ugh. But, like, she's good at when she does. And don't you want your kid to be, like, taught by... Yeah, Milana. But, I mean, think about, like, what she did. Okay. But, like, that's the same shit you do in your own bedroom. She's probably the W word. You just didn't get paid for it. You're not smart enough to get paid for it. <laughs> at this point, they can, like, publicly slut shame her. And that's that's what happened. People would spread rumors and gossip. And eventually... She accepted a teaching position in a different city because she was kind of forced out of being head of the Western Art Department at the Academy. Oh, fuck all of that noise. Yeah. I mean, I understand why she left, but like, oh. I know. I know. Um, And like the shittiest example of this came in 1936 when she was 41. At one of her solo shows, someone slashed a painting of hers, and on the wall beside it wrote, A Prostitute's Ode to Her Client. What the fuck? Like, no matter how successful of an artist she was, people were constantly using that against her. Oh, my God. I think they're just mad because they're not as talented and they wanted to lash out. That is, you know what, that's super true because in a lot of ways, even though for us, we're like, yeah, she was just making art. Given the social context of it, she was a threat to the established patriarchy, which sounds super intense. But you know what? It's true. That's what we're going for. We're always going to be a threat to an established patriarchy. Yeah. That's what we want. (laughs) That's why we're doing this podcast. So uh, Confucian ideology was is very much a guiding philosophy in China. Mm -hmm. And from that, you know, there's these deeply entrenched social ideals that have, you know, taken place within Chinese society and other regions. And they, they, like, often contribute to, like, very rigid social structures. One of them being that women are inferior to men. Huh. Shocker. Now, that is that is not unique to Conf- Confucian thought, nor necessarily does it endorse it. It's just, it's like how that has manifested in other major religions. Like, whether or not the texts actually endorse it or not. Right. So, like, even though we're in a period of modernization in China, a successful woman like Yu Lang is still going to piss people off. Because she's seen in a way of pushing back against those kind of traditional social norms. Right. And, like, especially so within traditional Chinese painters, because it's very Mm hierarchy-based, you know, very old school, where the old masters are the one who are leading the field. And she essentially just showed up from France, like, in her, like, young 30s, in her early 30s. I was like, hey, cool, like, I'm successful now. (laughs) Which is cool, but for someone who's, like, let's say in their 70s and have... Has been struggling, yeah. They've been doing it for decades, like, that's going to piss them off. Yeah. And I think that that was a underlying social factor, too, within the art community and why she had such backlash and why people were so quick to use her past against Mm -hmm. her. Because it was, like, the one thing they could try to bring her mm-hmm. down with. Yeah. Low-hanging fruit, for sure. Super shitty. Yeah, and then on top of that, like, she painted nude women. Yes! And not even, like, sexy women. Ugh. Oh, how dare you paint yeah. naked women, but, like, in a way that isn't sexualized. How dare you? So out of all the type of artwork she was doing, her nudes are the most notable. In part, because, like you said, because she's not sexualizing the female right. form. 
And from like a Western perspective, we're just like, yeah, cool. Like the naked body, like been there, done that. Especially the white female body. I mean, that's like been the default beauty standard for centuries. Right, right, right. But the introduction of any nude body within the traditional Chinese art canon was like a big Mm -hmm. deal. Like it was seen as a vulgar, indecent Western import. Oh, God. Like they were somehow, like she was somehow like disrespecting the... Yeah, her and other modern painters too. Like the, the head honcho of the art academy she went to when he introduced figure drawing from the nude, like he was called out in the same way. It, someone even called her a traitor of art. Oh. Because it just it was so counter to traditional kind of art content within China. Complete bullshit. Like within China, like the highest form of art is landscape paintings. Yeah, that makes sense. So nudes, it's a complete 180 from that. Yeah. And so I think that was that was another reason why there was pushback. And Yulang, like, she she painted a crap ton of nudes, I think about 4,000 in total. That's crazy. Yeah, so Yulang was exploring the nude in, you know, all these different ways and uh, kind of positions. And she wasn't sexualizing them. She was just approaching it as a subject matter to be explored. And, like, one thing that's really cool is that out of roughly the 4,000 nudes that she painted, like, in her lifetime, mm-hmm. over half of them are women of color. Oh, that's great. Which is super awesome. Yeah. And especially so because later on she moves to France where the majority of the models are default white. Mm-hmm. So like in a lot of formal respects, Yuling, she's adhering to like a modern visual language, you know, kind of like the style of like Matisse and others. Mm-hmm. But in content, like she's kind of giving the art world a middle finger, like in not painting thin white women. Right. And then, too, in the Chinese context of like, no, this is what I'm going to make. This is legit art. And I'm not going to be bullied into, you know, painting something that is, you know, respectable. Bullied into submission. Yeah, like flowers or something. Yeah. Which, I mean, she paints those, too. And they're lovely. <laughs> Actually, she has a pretty awesome website. A lot of the artists that I covered uh, are a little bit more on the obscure side. Mm-hmm. So things are kind of fragmented, trying to find sources for their art. And... She's got a pretty solid one. I'm not quite sure who put it together, but it's got her landscape paintings, her flowers, her nudes. Mm-hmm. It's it's pretty comprehensive, which is awesome to actually be able to comprehensively see someone's artwork all in one space. Oh, yeah. Oh, that must be magical. So check it out in the show notes. Good. So yeah, so things kind of rocky in China. Things are kind of shifting a bit towards nationalism. Japan had raided a region of China, like North of Korea. Yeah. This guy, Mao, was appointed leader of the new communist, the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah. War II is creeping up, and Yuling, she'd been considering moving to Paris for a while, and was like, you know what, 1937, I'm getting the fuck out. Oh, that's so nice. Which is, like, right before World War II kicked off in China. Oh, God. So, yeah, the timing worked out pretty okay. (laughs) Um, I mean, she did have to spend World War II in France, like, hiding in the countryside, but yeah. c- could have been worse. She's got she's got her countryside and her, her paints. So she totally felt that she'd be more creatively productive and, like, more well-received there in France. Right. And that was, that was totally true. So, I mean, she was still marginalized just because of her existence as a Chinese woman. Yeah. But... Paris offered a lot more opportunities for her compared to Shanghai. And, I mean, even then, Shanghai was still a pretty progressive place for her to be in in the 1920s and 30s. So, moving to France, Yuling, she hit the ground running. She showed her art in Europe and the United States. And, like, she made art on her own terms. Like, she didn't really sign with galleries. She took commissions as she wanted. And, and this is where more of her sculpture work comes in. She did a few, like, stone bust of, like, head honchos in the art world. Okay. Heads of museums. And she was super involved in the Paris art scene. Um, she taught at one of the art schools. And she learned French prior to being awarded the scholarship when she was back in China. Oh. So she was very fluent in French, yeah. That's cool. And she was, like, appointed the head of, like, the Chinese Arts Association in Paris. So just like she was in Shanghai, like she's very socially involved in the art movement within France as well. And, and in addition to teaching and being an educator and then also practicing and having shows. So as homesick as, she, as she'd get, Yuling never returned to China. And one speculation is that it's because she was sending money back home to help support her family. Another reason why she might not move back to China is 
because the new People's Republic of China just might not have been that welcoming to her. Oh, yeah. They're, like, alienating her, and she's like... Well, communist leader Mao had led a civil war and ended in 1949 with creation of the People's Republic of China. Right. And from 66 to 67, there was the Cultural Revolution. That was a very bad time to be a Western-style Chinese artist. There was a severe crackdown on perceived cultural threats to, like, the new communistic nationalism. Mm. One leading Cubist artist was branded a counter-revolutionary. He was paraded around the National Academy of Art where he taught. He had ink poured on him, and the students beat him. What? For, for being into Cubism? Because he was a Western-style artist that... A Western influence posed a threat to this new political regime. They went about erasing any type of influence like that. They had him burn his most famous painting, and the majority of his artwork was destroyed. Oh, my God. That's so heartbreaking. And that's just one guy. Like, overall, the impact on China's creative intellectual community was it was intense. And over 30 years of Mao's rule, like 60 million people died because of his political campaigns. That's fucking insane. Yeah. So, Yuling, you know, maybe not ideal that she felt she needed to go to the France to begin with. But overall, it was definitely a much more su- supportive, creative place for her to be. Right. She got out when she needed to be. And again, the timing right before World War II hit, like it, yeah. it worked out well for her. Because things might have been drastically different if she had stayed. The details on Yulang's life in France, they're kind of broad. But, you know, we know that she was involved in the community. She kept making art. And this is up till her death in 1977. And, like, overall, there's kind of this weird irony to Yulang's placement within the art world. Because, like, late 1800s, early 1900s, like, there's this fetishizing of women that are not white within Western art. Mm. So French painter Paul Gauguin was 100% guilty of being a super pervy creep. Yeah. Who, like, sexualized women of color, specifically teenage girls in Tahiti. Oh, yes. I do think we we touched on that fucker before. Yeah, because he's the most prominent example of it. And so so his work is, like, art history canon. And yet here we have a woman like Yulang who is, like, an active agent in asserting the female form. And, like, specifically women of color pushing back against these, like, sexist, racist notions that, you know, other artists, white men are, like, fetishizing on these women. Yeah. And her her work isn't as well known. Mm. Like, that's not as fun. Like, people like the idea more than the actuality. Yeah. Which kind of sucks. It's the way it works when you don't make a woman sexy for some very odd and strange reason. And then she's just no good. So during her lifetime, Yulang, she did enjoy international success and recognition. And since her passing, her life story has been the subject of numerous novels and movies and TV shows and even an opera. What? Yeah. And these are all majority like Chinese works created domestically. And it's pretty cool because like the majority of her artwork is held in the collection of the National Art Museum in Beijing and then also the Anhui Provincial Museum and that's the region that Yulang was from outside of Shanghai. And she also has additional work in a, a Paris museum, too. Gotcha. Yeah, and from the start, there was that critical acclaim for her work and recognition, which is pretty wild. So that is Pan Yulang, best known for bridging Western and Chinese art and, uh, and asserting the female nude as a subject and not as an object which is even depressing that someone has to do that. but To keep doing it. And super depressing that, yeah. you know, they she was ostracized and run out of China for it. <sighs> People suck. There's give and take. So like I said, it's not completely a rosy tale, but it's no. definitely one of success and perseverance. And she was away from her family. She was away from her husband for almost 40 years living Jesus. abroad in, China, in France. Yeah. I guess, yeah, he didn't come with because there was still a first wife and a son. Yeah. Oh, so she she sacrificed, you know, that family relationship and opportunities and, and able to pursue her art and be successful. So she knew that had to work out that way. But you got to do what you got to do. Yeah, especially given the circumstances. So that's what I got for you today. It is not warm and fuzzy. I will try to find something warm and fuzzy in the future. No pinky promises. <sighs> Sad panda. I will say, though, that my lady, she does 
There's there's some sexism, but for the most part, it's we're ending on a high note. So don't worry, I got you. Okay, I got you. Hey, mine was not super depressing. No. Okay. No. 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 We're just gonna keep riding that high. All the way up to the atmosphere. Yeah. Are we going out of this world? Oh God. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I love you. I love you. I can't see your face right now, but I love you. Okay, now I can see your face. She's not happy with me, everyone. I am. I'm going to finally complete the Women of NASA Lego set today. I am doing the fourth and final lady in my astronomy astronomy superhero Lego set. So we did Mae Jameson, first African-American astronaut in space. Mm -hmm. She was also on Star Trek. Sally Ride. (laughs) First woman in space, but also the first individual in the LGBTQ community. Margaret Hamilton, our wonderful programmer. Yeah, her image floats around Facebook every now and again because the code she wrote as tall as her is like as tall as her. Yeah. Super brilliant woman. Today we're going to talk about Nancy Grace Roman. Yeah, no idea who that is. Not to be confused with Nancy Grace. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. <laughs> that would be quite a twist. It would be tragic. Tragic. It'd be like, how are you going to pull this one off? What <laughs> secret science has that woman done? Some secret evil science? She doesn't even believe in <laughs> science. Oh, nightmare. She's a fucking nightmare. This Nancy Grace is not a nightmare. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, she's great, and I love her. She was born May 16th, 1925 in Nashville, Tennessee. Her mom, Georgia, was a music teacher. Her father, Irwin, was a physicist and mathematician. Both of her parents encouraged her love for science, and she would go on to say that actually both of them were her inspirations to go into astronomy. So mom would take her on walks, teach her about birds and bugs, and then point up to the sky and teach her about constellations, and that's the one that stuck. She was like, that's great, bird, whatever. Stars? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Nice. And her father's job would actually keep them moving around for most of her childhood. So it started with a move to Oklahoma, then Texas, then New Jersey, Michigan, Nevada. So that sounds super familiar. But Nevada is where she actually started an astronomy club with her friends. She was 11 11 years old, and they would meet in her yard every week, open a textbook, and find the constellations in the sky. What? I love it. It's great. Those little dorks. (laughs) So, 1935, I packed up one more time because Dad took a job at the U.S. Geological Survey, which was, where else, Megan? Baltimore, Maryland. Oh, really? Yeah. It was at the Western High School there that she would ask her advisor if she could take a second year in algebra and not a fifth year in Latin. And the response from her advisor was just like, what kind of lady would take mathematics instead of Latin? I mean, either of those? Ugh. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, so you remember when you and I both vehemently avoided continuing our mathematics journey and took alternate math classes instead to get out of high school? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that computer science class did not work out so well for me. Uh, My my stupid college math class worked out really well for me. Yeah. No, she's not one of those individuals. No, she was like, I I, I want more math in my life. I don't know if she actually got more math in her life. It didn't tell me, which sucked. Wait till Leah was hanging. All right, cool. That was my fault. Well, in all all the times that I saw that quote, because that's been quoted on several things, like, I didn't see whether or not she actually got it. Yeah. But. No, but I mean, either way, she was very adamant about. About getting that in her life. Yeah. Yeah. She she was like, whatever, this is stupid. And she ended up participating in an accelerated program and graduating early. Oh, nice. Yeah. Which is what I did. And it was wonderful. Then she would find herself up in Swarthmore. She was intending to study astronomy. Once again, she was met with an advisor who literally told her that she wouldn't have anything to do with her after she told the advisor her plan. Like, like, I won't do it. She just booted her over to the astronomy department and never spoke to her again. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, whatever. Sent her on her way. While she was allowed to be in the astronomy department, the faculty in the department were just as annoyed by the fact that she wanted to be an astronomer. They did, however, teach her, which is better than just booting her away. Particularly, the chair, Peter Vandekamp, kept a close eye on her, and he taught her to use the two student telescopes, which were both pretty screwed up. Student stuff, you know, what do you want to do? She had to quickly learn how they should work, certain techniques to get them to do what she wanted, and how to fix them when they got Mm -hmm. too stubborn. So doing this kind of thing 
sparked her interest in the instruments used in astronomy and laid a foundation of knowledge that she took with her for the rest of her career. So, back to Van de Kamp. During her sophomore year, she worked under him at the Sproul Observatory, and that's the observatory there at Swarthmore. And he would end up teaching her a solo class in astrometry, which is, according to Google, I'm just going to quote, branch of astronomy that involves precise measurements of the positions and movements of stars and other celestial bodies, unquote. So... Okay. You use this past ancient catalog as like a reference point, and you cross-reference that point with the point that it's at when you're looking at it. So you can see exactly how it's moved, where it's going, and how long it took to get there. So, like, I started a bunch of wiki pages about the different aspects of her career, of, of her work, and I think we've all established that my brain doesn't work in physics or mechanics. So I'm just not going to go any further than that. Like, not doing it. <laughs> So, long story short, she graduates Swarthmore in 1946, and she has grown so much on Van de Kamp that he tells her that she should continue her education in astronomy. Oh, nice. And the words were... Uh-oh. Not nice just yet. <laughs> Quote, you know, I usually try to talk women out of going into physics, but I think maybe you might make it. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> trying to think of how that could have gotten worse. I'm like... For a pair of tits, you're pretty good at science. Oh, my God. Literally, that's the only way it could have gotten worse. <laughs> it's only one step down. According to her, though, these were the first words of encouragement she had ever received from someone who wasn't one of her parents. Oh, that's depressing. Yep. I mean, at least she wasn't like an orphan forced into prostitution. Yeah. But, you know, it's still depressing. You can only go up. <laughs> yeah. So she decides to go to the University of Chicago in 1946, and she's bored. Apparently, the classes at Swarthmore were a tad more challenging than the ones at the University of Chicago at the time. Yeah, I don't think that's how it's supposed to be with your graduate program, but okay. Yeah, I know. Yeah, but also, it's Swarthmore. Like, it's not an easy school to get into. So if you made it through Swarthmore, you've basically made it. Is it an all-women's school? No. Okay. It's just one of those fancy private schools that is really good and really okay, hard to get into. Cool. So she she decides, I'm bored. She approaches three professors for some extra stuff to work on. And she got a theory project, a data analysis project, and an observational project. And, of course, she dives right into the observational project because it involved the use of a 12-inch telescope. Mm -hmm. So the guy who gave her the project was so dismissive of her. There were six months of her time there that he just completely ignored her. Oh, Jesus. She would, like, say hi to him in the hallway, and they were like, no, not even. Yeah, that's, that's awkward. So being dismissed her entire life, she's like, whatever, I'm going to keep working. And she writes her thesis on the Ursa Major group. It's apparently a group of similar stars that moved with the similar velocities and were believed to have the same origins. So when I say Ursa Major, we're talking about the Big Dipper. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's that particular constellation is a major part of the entire group, but it's not just that constellation. Okay. And it's just like they're all believed to be similar, and she wanted to check the similarities. Okay. So, anyway, it must have been some good work because she spent two months after at a different observatory and was asked to return back to back to Chicago at York's, which is the observatory there, as a research mm -hmm. associate. And she was asked to do so by the same guy that ignored her for six months. Yeah, still awkward. Uh, yeah, I mean, she went. Yeah, that's going to be tough because you're like, you're kind of a dickhole, but also I need that opportunity. Mm -hmm. She went back and... Her work focused on specifically stellar spectroscopy. Oh, yeah. I totally know what that is. Telescopes. That's it. That's it. Like, it's either telescopes or microscopes, but it's scopes. Okay. Yeah. And stellar is just stellar, like, out of this world. Okay. All right. Easy. Easy peasy. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> so, there she would focus on high-velocity stars and go on to write several papers that were on the top 100 astron astronomical charts. So... Mm -hmm. There's like a ranking for academic papers. I didn't know that. <laughs> she was like, top 100, read her stuff. She was starting to get nationally like known. She made several mm -hmm. discoveries, including the chemical makeup of different stars and how that chemical makeup affects the velocities, how similar stars aren't always the same age as each other, and how the movement patterns of these stars would translate onto the plates taken by these machines. So heavier lines on the images were circular orbits, like our own sun. Lighter lines were elliptical in its route. She even created her own catalog of stars, jotting down colors, UV emissions, just every characteristic she could think of. She did this for 600 stars. 
And these were all very fundamental and groundbreaking papers and discoveries at the time that we didn't know. And okay, yeah, she's she's rising in fame. She's offered several research positions at other universities. She turns them down because they didn't seem to have the telescopes that she wanted to play with. <laughs> I like it. So this was all between 1949 and 1954. Okay. 1954 is where she jumped ship. So the department chair at the time thinks that computers are useless in astronomical sciences. <laughs> yeah. Oh. And also he refused to upgrade the lab like she had asked. And she's noticing that tenure for women in the academic world is very rare to come by. So she decides to work at the yeah. Naval Research Lab. And it had the biggest, most accurate radio telescope in the 1950s. Oh, where was that located? It's in Washington, D.C. I wondered, yeah. Yeah. She didn't go very far. <laughs> She wanted to play with the telescope, Megan. I mean, (laughs) when your work is only as good as your equipment, like, I don't blame her. Yeah. Like, you want to work with the best to facilitate your best work. Yeah. She would see these telescopes and be like, I want it. I want to play. (laughs) And she does. So this is where she dives into radio astronomy. It's literally just peeing radio waves into space and seeing how long it takes to hit things. Okay. She she maps out a pretty big chunk of the Milky Way using this method and is able to recalculate the distance the moon is away from us to a much more accurate number. So this is this is big. So big that she's invited to speak at the Bayurakan Observatory in the Soviet Union. And she's the first civilian to set foot there since the start of the Cold War. That's a big deal. I know. This is 1956, and she's got national fame, she's got international fame, and NASA, just six months old, has the balls to reach out to her and ask, do you know anyone who would like to set up a program in space astronomy? And it wasn't meant as an invitation for her, but she took it. She took it as one, (laughs) and she applied. (laughs) I like it. And she got the job. Nice. Mm -hmm. She becomes NASA's first chief of astronomy and the first woman in a leading role at NASA, an executive role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a quote about her decision to join, and it was, quote, I knew that taking on this responsibility would mean that I could no longer do research, but the challenging, sorry, but the challenge of formulating a program from scratch that I believed would influence astronomy for decades to come was too great to resist. I mean, that's like an awesome opportunity to be able to really structure the foundations of a program like that. She was like, okay, this is it. This is what I'm doing in my life now. Um, And then she inherited this six-month-old baby program that NASA was already starting on, but she straight up created her department from scratch. Mm -hmm. So her job specifically was an administrative uh, and outreach situation. So she assembled a team of scientists, oversaw the projects that included astronomy, and traveled across the nation to speak with scientists that weren't NASA-based. Okay. The goal of a program was to be a program, not just for the government, but for the American science community as a whole. It was to sell them on the projects that NASA was doing, but also as a reconnaissance mission to see what astronomers would like to see done. Can you guess what they wanted to see, Megan? To go to the moon. That was one. That was a big Uh, one. Bigger telescopes. Much bigger telescopes. Shoot telescopes into space. You know what? I would have gotten there at some point. (laughs) You were so close. The second one was actually right up her alley, as we know. So the problem, do you know the problem with using telescopes on Earth? Um, uh, no. Okay, so the problem with using telescopes down here is that the atmosphere is filled with so much debris and interference, it's really hard to get a good picture of the stars. That's why they twinkle when we look at them. Okay. They're not actually twinkling, it's just shit in the way. So it's super annoying. <laughs> Astronomers wanted to see as clearly as they could, and they wanted as much data as they could get their hands on. So this means we're not just sending telescopes that are based off of visual light. We're sending telescopes based off of rays we can't see. So UV, gamma, X-rays, some celestial bodies don't even emit visual light rays. So they had to send different kinds of eyes up. And each one of these kinds of telescopes tell a different story. So how long it's been around, what it's made of, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you place those pieces mm-hmm. together from each picture that you take from different telescopes, and suddenly you get a much more in-depth history So into whatever you're studying. Okay. Like in Photoshop, you can see all these different layers. Exactly. For sure. Under all these different filters. And then you okay. suddenly get, like, this bigger... Exactly. So Roman, fancy, oversaw the placement of these telescopes. Her first successful space-based telescope was in 1968, and it operated using UV rays. It was called Copernicus. Okay. She was shooting telescopes up into stars as quickly and responsibly as she could. Each one got bigger and bigger. (laughs) Starting from 12 inches to 36 inches. 
which was an infrared deal, to overseeing the creation of a telescope whose mirror is 7.9 feet across and is about 43.3 feet in length, the size of a small bus. It's called the Hubble Space Telescope. Okay, cool. I guess it's kind of nice to have the visual of it like being the size of a like a school bus, it's would you say? 40, yeah, 43.3 feet, so a small bus. I don't know if it's a school bus situation, but it's like it's not a double-decker. It's pretty big. Okay, yeah. all right. This is not this is not your normal telescope in the backyard. Yeah, and I like how it starts with a, a humble little telescope that's like a foot in length. <laughs> Fast forward a few years and be like, well, you know, it just seemed like, you know, go big or go home. Well, by a few years, it was April 24th, 1990. Yeah, no, definitely go big or go home. Okay, a few, de- few decades. <laughs> I mean, a telescope that big, like a national program like that, like it's not going to be within three years. It's going to be... Especially since they didn't have, like, she was starting from scratch. Like, they didn't know how to send these telescopes up. These were the first telescopes going up into space. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, they had, a, they had a lot of successes, but they had even more failures because they were learning and growing with each one of their mm-hmm. failures. They were like, well, this didn't go up. How about this one? Like, it was a lot of trial and error because they were working from scratch and from, like, this. there were no precedents any of it and and to build these like you need a completely clean dust free like a highly controlled like area to make them and to manufacture the telescopes oh we didn't we had like nowhere to do it it was yeah yeah so yes it's got four main parts to observe the universe it's visible light x-ray and infrared spectrums and they it's actually the only one you can service in space so there have been five service missions. There was actually when it went up, it originally wasn't correct because the mirror was off just a little bit. So they had to make a spe- mm-hmm. like essentially little spectacles for the Hubble. Why? Because, nice. I mean, they don't. It doesn't look like glasses, but um, what they yeah. did was essentially what we do with our human eyes. So it's been up there for thirty years, and it's found some pretty big things. So, like, how old the universe is. That's the big one. (laughs) It's a good place to start. I know. 13.7 billion years old, by the way. The images we have through Hubble are from light emitted 13.7 billion years ago. We're essentially looking into the past. Yeah. No, can't can't wrap my head around that. So, I know. it, It took me a little bit. So, the best way that I can explain it. So, you know how light reaches the film on a camera? Yeah, it's that it's a delayed reaction of how like we're still seeing stars that yeah. have burnt out like just eons ago because of the vast distance. It took 13.7 billion years for the light from that star to reach what is essentially the film on our camera. So mm-hmm. whatever we're seeing is what was happening 13.7 billion years ago and Whatever that is may look like it probably looks drastically different now. And we won't know until 13.7 billion more years. (laughs) And that's you're saying specific to where the Hubble telescope is right now or. No, that's that was that's the oldest point we found with the Hubble telescope. Okay, that was okay. And we know that from the light, the kind of light that's emitting the kind of like the different eyes. Like, we know what it's made out of. We know how long it took. Like, that sort of thing. Each each puzzle yeah. piece, like, we knew how we know how old that thing is or how long it took to get to us. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to think about. <laughs> it's even more mind-fucking to think that whatever it looks like now looks nothing like what it, like what it is or what we're seeing. So that's even more like, mm-hmm. like you're literally looking into the past. Like, it's crazy. Yeah. But it's it's like a fucking candy store for astronomers, so... Heck yeah. So it was also the instrument that has detected and documented the most information on dark matter and energy that any other instrument could possibly ma- like grab. You say dark matter. I said dark matter. You covered it before. <sighs> Do you want me to cover it again? No, it just gives me a headache. I mean, I'm I'm going to later. Uh, don't worry. I'm gonna I'm gonna touch it again later. <laughs> I love oh, you. Oh my goodness. Hey hey guys, here's the substance that makes up the majority of everything, but not us, and we can't see it, and we're just insignificant specks of dust in this entire vast universe of existence. The matter that we can interact with makes up five percent of the matter in the entire universe. You're welcome. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's that's what I said. In, insignificant specks of nothing. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh. <laughs> 
So, uh, it has also allowed us to discover the existence of protoplanetary disks. Like that, Milona. Yeah, I was about to say, I'm going to need a definition on that, please. Because I can kind of imagine it, but like, I don't know if what I'm imagining and what is reality are one and the same. Uh, yeah, so those disks just lend themselves to the theory of abiogenesis, which is the theory that life happened from non-living matter, such as organic compounds. So the theory is that these disks existed around our sun and some random molecular generation happened, like carbon and such. And then we just snowballed from there via, where I'm going to quote, evolutionary process of increasing complexity that involved molecular self-replication, self-assembly, autocatalysis, and the emergence of cell membranes. Yeah, sure. Cool. We started with carbon, hydrogen, oxygen that were just like created in this little disk, essentially little molecules, like organic molecules that make up living matter, carbon being the big one. yeah spontaneously over time like slow evolution happened from that carbon started attaching to carbons and the carbon started attaching to hydrogen and then you get like like these little proto i'm not going to get into it but basically it started from our organic compounds and our organic molecules and that's when life started that's that's the point of abiogenesis okay yeah so they're like what the hell is this random disc that things are just like things are just emerging from this disc but like why is it why is it a disk and not a sphere? Because when you say it's like a pre-planetary, it makes me think like it's still the early stages of like mass gathering that will eventually turn into yeah. I think a that's planet. that's basically yeah. That's that's where it's coming from. It's like the start of something that's going to be bigger, kind of like the rings of Saturn, but there's more in the middle. Okay, see so when you say disk, I I guess I thought of it as like a solid concrete form and mass yeah that center gravitational pull that's like loosely pulling everything in yeah things like more of a disc atmosphere there's just a lot going on in these discs that allow for the formation of a lot of different things because every there's there are so many molecules and parts of it moving around like something's bound to happen it may take a hundred thousand years but something's bound to happen and that's pretty cool that they were able to send this telescope like the size of a almost school bus and like through all the different abilities of like the lenses to be able to to see these things it's crazy yeah no these images are super insane have you ever seen a hubble image and what it looks like i have do you know how long it takes for the images to be received back here on earth from when they were initially taken maybe i mean i don't know how at this point how far away it is from earth but like i could see it maybe being like a six month delay or something i think the first image was after 10 days okay now here's another question is that is it held within the earth's orbit or is it out actively exploring the universe i think it's still in orbit okay i guess i got the impression that it is like out of our orbit out into the universe but i don't know where i got that idea from it orbits the Earth in 97 minutes, so it's in our orbit. Oh, that's even more impressive than that, like, how far-ranging its images are. And that's why it's so big. Like, Okay, so I guess I had the impression that these images were being transmitted over, like, a ridiculous amount of space to reach Earth. But it's, like, right up there with all our cell phone satellites, too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Nancy fits into this because she's known as the mother of the Hubble telescope. Mm -hmm. And the name was given to her by one of her scientists, Edward J. Weller. She didn't make it for herself. She's it's actually really funny because watching interviews with her, if you mention it, she like winces. And she (laughs) she often laments that there were plenty of other scientists in the mix for the Hubble to actually show up and do the thing. Like her whole stance was that she didn't do much. Okay. But Honestly, she was so instrumental in the creation of the astronomy program, the conglomeration of the scientists needed for the Hubble's project, and the procurement of the money and backing needed to even start the project, let alone finish it. Even though she was only there for, like, first 10 years, she w- she still started it all. Yeah, and really instrumental in laying the foundation for its future growth. Exactly. And also, have you ever tried to keep a bunch of brilliant scientists on track with shit? Like, it- it's hard. <laughs> I'm just going to throw that out there. (laughs) The heart, like the start of the Hubble project was in the 70s, and the Hubble family finally went up in the 90s. She was at NASA for the first 10 years of the project, but she laid the damn foundation, and that's what's important. Mm 
Mm-hmm. She had to leave, though. She took an early retirement to take care of her mom. She was sick. I couldn't get whether or not, like, or when mom, like, passed away. Um, but I guess she, like, still couldn't sit still regardless of the early retirement because that didn't stop her from doing other cool stuff. So she dabbled in Fortran. If you remember, that was one of the first computer languages that NASA and human computers had to learn. Mm -hmm. And Nancy was certain computers were going to be important, so she made sure to keep up with it. And this actually ended up with her becoming the head of the Astronomical Data Center at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in 1995. Oh, sweet. Okay, cool. And on top of that, she would, like, teach advanced middle and high school students in, like, undeserved districts, because why not? Mm -hmm. For about 10 years, she also did astronomy audiobooks for people who are blind or suffering from dyslexia. She's one of those women who retired and never stopped moving. And she also pushed for more women in higher positions, as well as equivalent salaries across the board. It was an issue that always seemed to come up with her, like interviews, the ones that I saw. And although she would admit that she didn't know how to make it happen systematically, she would, like, she would still try to do things on her end. So she would take women in management classes. But the ones she took, they were in the 90s. And they focused more on, like, the interests of working women and not the problems that they faced in the work mm-hmm. environment. So those were disappointing to her. Yeah. But she was always like, like, I know there's going to be some sort. Like, she's like, there's going to be a woman astronaut in space. Like, I know it. I can feel it. Like, it's going to happen. She just wanted to see more, like, women in like executive roles like she had been she passed away in 2018 she's won countless awards recognized by scientific associations and women's organizations across the board she was one of the figurines of the women of nasa lego set which i touched on earlier which she loved she thought it was really fun (laughs) she definitely received recognition during her lifetime however she didn't get to see the new space telescope we're planning on sending up so oh i don't know about that In just five years, we're planning on sending a big, bad telescope in space that would focus on dark energy. Oh, this again. Okay. (laughs) It's going to be named after her. That's pretty fun. As we touched before, dark energy and matter make up like 5% of the matter in the universe. And it's matter we can't see, hear, smell, or detect beyond the way that it bends light around certain objects in space. (laughs) Yeah, so if you ever want to feel insignificant, just think of dark matter. <laughs> We're, I mean, they're naming the space telescope made specifically to focus on the space that we don't know after the woman who legitimately launched the first groundbreaking space-based telescope in history. Mm-hmm. I don't know. They're, to me, there's something so beautiful and heartwarming that they were like, she's, she's the pioneer and she's going to continue to be the pioneer even after death. And it's beautiful. And I love it and I can't wait until it <laughs> launches. I can't wait to see what dark matter has in store for us. Oh, I mean, I know what it is. Yeah, the world doesn't end before then. It actually accelerates um, the expansion of the universe and eventually accelerates our demise. But that's a whole different thing. Gee, thanks. I, hey, I thought you said you were going to be ending on a good note. She's, she's awesome. That's, that was the good note. We don't, we don't think about the other things. What she would focus on is... The kind of education that we'll be getting from this telescope and the kind of movements forward in science. And that's what we should focus on. Space. The place where you will not go with me. And because (laughs) of dark matter (laughs) and like fucking black holes and protoplanetary disks and... What was that? The pulsars, too? Those are violent. Um, No, I'm good. Where's your sense of adventure? (laughs) <laughs> anyhow that's that's my story no that's cool that's really cool knowing more about the creation of the hubble uh, telescope yeah. she did a lot of beautiful stuff i i really think it was a sense of like imposter syndrome yeah been there done that yeah like we're like we're not we didn't do anything and really we we did a lot more than we thought and i feel like she was definitely in that position she, yeah she spent her entire life being told like you're not going to do anything. And yeah, no, that's wild, especially, you know, to be going through school in the 1940s and 50s and to have people completely yeah. dismiss you. That's, that's rough. That's got to have an impact and um, to be really hard to shake mm-hmm. years after the fact. She did some beautiful stuff. So thank you, Nancy Grace Roman, for yeah. being awesome. And not that other no, Nancy Grace. Not that Nancy Grace. We don't thank you. No, nope. not that one. Nope. It's a good one. All right. Well, as always, if you guys have made it this far... You're really awesome, and we really appreciate it. And if you want to show your appreciation, we got a donate button. You can hit us up on our website, hit that PayPal button. Anything helps. People want to give us their donation and see more about the people that we've covered this episode. Where can they see more? We have a website. 
myfavoritefeminist.com. Our email is info at myfavoritefeminist. Our Instagram and Facebook are both myfavoritefeminist. And our Twitter is at Milena Megan. That's at M-I-L-E-N-A-M-E-G-A-N. You can listen to us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. So it also takes two seconds to like, subscribe, and share, honestly. And that's free. So if you want to do that, that's how you can support us. And on the comment section, you can let us know what instrument is super important in your line of work. What can't you live without and why? What's that one thing that you would just be fucked without, Megan? I know this is lame, but my eyeballs. I mean, that's important. <laughs> I mean, I know, I know. That's not what you're really asking, but I mean, I... <laughs> not, not your eyeballs. What's the next one? <laughs> well, being ceramic-based, I, I need a kiln for the type of work that I do. Without a kiln, I just have clay. And that's nice if I'm doing mold making, but that's fair. if I want to make my clay actual ceramic, I need a kiln. What about you? Depends on what work we're talking about. <laughs> uh, photography, I mean, a camera for sure. But I think everything right now is like computer-based. No matter what I do, like I need to have a computer with a solid processor and like... You gave me rough for saying that. I mean, no, because everything like this podcast, uh, my photography, well, yeah, my paid work, I guess. I guess you're right. So I'll start with a camera and, ooh, solid light sources. Okay. I was thinking more like specialty equipment, but. No, these are, those are, I have several like photo studios and I need like the softeners for photography. Like without this proper lighting, I'm fucked. Yeah, no, it makes a big difference unless you're shooting out in the wild. Even even in the wild, like the reflectors, like that big circular thing. Like I, mm-hmm. it's light is everything in photography. So. All right. Um, until next time, guys. We'll see you then. Bye. Oh, I'm done pooping. That was quick. It's what I do. It's what I do. Some of us aren't as blessed.